Welcome to Real Talk JavaScript, the weekly talk show with advice and insight into the technologies and practices currently being used to build web applications in the real world. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Wallen, and John Papa talk to industry experts about their experiences writing, deploying, and maintaining web applications in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Real Talk JavaScript. This is episode 44, and we're calling this one the long-time Java but first-time script episode. And we've got a great guest on today who is a long-time Java developer and has recently, uh, a couple months ago, really dove hard back into the JavaScript world. We'll introduce him in just a moment. But first, my co-host, Ward Bell. How's it going? Hello, John. It is going. Uh, I, uh, I visited my roof the roof of my house uh, for the first time in ages yesterday because we're installing solar. Wow. You're doing it yourself. Ah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing up there? (laughs) Not smart. No, I wanted to go off and look and see what the heck they're doing up there. But Ah. this, it seems to me that we're uh, at least in California, we're at a tipping point where it's really starting to make sense because the prices are coming down. This is the last year of the 30,000, Dollar tax credit and the price of electricity in California is rising really fast. So yeah, here it goes up by the minute out there. It's you know um, with all the wildfires and stuff like that uh, and the bankruptcy of the, our our uh, power company. Um, the only way out is for rates to go up. So it just you know it's an if you're if you're wondering if now's the time for you, uh, you know it could be. You know, the time would be now for me if you're willing to pay for my solar, too. Absolutely, John. The check's in the mail. Thank you very much. Uh, And if any of you out there want solar, just ask Ward Bell. Uh, He's willing to pay for everybody these days. So anyway, this week's episode, we have a colleague of mine from Microsoft, Brian Kettleson. He's a developer advocate for Go, Linux, and containers at Microsoft. Brian, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for jumping on. It's, uh, It's funny. When we talked about this topic... We were just talking before the show even that this is the first time I think we've raised the point of, hey, I'm an experienced developer, I'm an experienced technologist in many different uh, areas, and I've most recently gotten back into JavaScript, and I feel like that experience is common in our industry, but not talked about as often. How was it for you? Like, What were you doing before JavaScript? Uh, most recently, and then uh, with your experience, and then what did you dive into first? So really the last 10 years, I've done nothing but Go programming. Um, Containers, working on Kubernetes and Docker, uh, all back-end things, and even some web development type things in Go. But uh, I've ignored the front end completely. In fact, uh, I would say that my web development learning stopped when CSS was introduced. And I remember that being somewhere roughly around 2002 or 2003. I was working up in in the Virginia area around D.C. And and somebody came into work and said, oh, CSS is going to change everything. And I said, I'm out. (laughs) That's really fascinating. (laughs) So I I really didn't know much about uh, front end at all. And JavaScript scared me every time I tried to touch JavaScript um, the tooling and the ecosystem and the fragmentation definitely uh, pushed me away and made my experience poor. Well, I think it's definitely fair to say that JavaScript we were doing 19 years ago was uh, a lot different 
than it is today. Whether we've improved or not, I guess we can talk about today on the show a little bit more. But I, one thing I found is if you did JavaScript back then, and I did some back then as well, the problems I had at the time were very different. Most of them centered around the fact that we had very different browser implementations with different document object models. And it was a big pain to make all that stuff work across Netscape and IE and so on and so forth. Uh, is that the same time frame when you were uh, leaving the JavaScript era? Yeah, definitely. Um, I remember having server-side scripting tools that did uh, browser tests that sent the correct JavaScript file that we had to handwrite. I mean, there was no transpiling back in the day. So, so you, we, missed, you missed the whole jQuery era as well, right? That's correct. I, I never used jQuery professionally in any way. You know, in some ways, I feel like th- that's really cool. I mean, you, you never picked up on that. I feel like in jQuery to me was, was uh, I kind of left JavaScript for about six years, and it was after jQuery. But jQuery is what kind of made it interesting to me was that, wow, I don't have to deal with all this cross-DOM stuff that I used to. But the other side is I feel like we're still suffering, not as much today as we were a couple of years ago, from the, uh, wow, how do I use jQuery to solve that problem, no matter what the problem was? <laughs> it's, it's like it still permeates everything. Right. Yeah, people are still swinging that hammer. Uh, and even though everybody's screaming, don't touch it, don't touch it. I mean, you know, because it was great. It was liberating. And... and as with anything that walks into the scene like that, it 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 goes it lives beyond its shelf life. Um, so, uh, but you know that's it, it, it. What's also true about what you're describing is that we remember um, we remember a technology area uh, from the time that we were there. Just as I, we, you know, you 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 completely forget that the years have passed and something might have happened there. Uh, and it's still the same old whatever it was uh, that it was when you last looked at it and shied away. So something has changed your mind. What's what's changed or at least gotten you off of that hook? Because, by the way, you are so like everybody, all the clients I go to, you know, they are they're They have minimal front end experience or if they have any, it's it's uh, in some server side rendering framework. Um, so what, what got you off that? Well, I I think maybe the biggest reason I decided to, to come back to JavaScript and and start learning modern front end development was that I was tired of asking other people to do it for me or paying other people to do it. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm a programmer. There's no reason I shouldn't be able to do it. And it's web technology. It's not rocket science. It shouldn't be too complicated for me to do. So I just, I made a resolution this year. It was literally around the first of the year. I said, I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm going to stop making excuses for why I fail and just just attack something. And coincidentally, um, towards the beginning of the year, so I, I started off doing uh, like Gatsby with MDX, which I think, by the way, is just game changing. Love, love Gatsby and MDX specifically makes that so much easier because the the developer experience is just so lightweight, so simple. And MDX is the, I don't remember what it stands for, but it's like Markdown in the JSX format. Is that right? Yeah, it's JSX, but for Markdown. Okay. So maybe it doesn't stand for anything. (laughs) Yeah, MDX. I don't know. I don't know what JSX stands for. So um, yeah, that that really made things easy. the, The problem with all of those tools is 
that you are abstracting an abstraction on top of another abstraction on top of another abstraction on top of another abstraction. So we get to the point where we're making React components in Markdown, and that's all great if you understand React. And React is great if you understand uh, Shadow DOM and the DOM. And you know the DOM's great if you understand how browsers work. You know, all of it, there's so many layers of abstraction, and I didn't understand any of them because that just wasn't a world that I've been in recently. The last time I did web development, it was all server-side. There was no client-side anything. And if there was, it was something really simple, um, definitely not application-worthy. It was, you know, the, the most complicated I think I ever got into front-end web development was in the early days of, like, um, ASP.NET during the beta. You know, I did um, whatever that .NET did to create JavaScript that did client-side validation. Was this, um, oh gosh, what did they, for a while they did jQuery with it, if I'm no, going this, back this was, six, this seven was, years ago. This was way before jQuery. Um, I'm thinking... Uh, this was around 2001 or 2002. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I missed that piece. I was. Uh, it was when .NET was, I'm sorry, ASP.NET was in beta or even in alpha. Gotcha. Back when it was called ASP Plus? Uh, maybe. It would be around 2000, <laughs> sometime then, I would think. Yeah, you know, there, there's some I'm people it was listening to this call and they're like, you know what? I was uh, in kindergarten then. Yeah, probably. <laughs> this, this is the show for old people. Yes, and I'm definitely in that category. So, <laughs> but that's fascinating though, because going through all this, you're absolutely right. There's, I was thinking, you know, when you said uh, Gatsby is an abstraction, yeah, yeah, it's over React, but is that a big deal? But you're right. If you start digging the layers down, and it's not a React thing, it's whether it's React, Angular, Vue, they're all abstractions over something else, over something else, over something else. Uh, and you really get down to what is the core API for maybe the web browser. Right. And that was that was the the actual struggling point for me was looking at all of the different abstractions and trying to find one of them that resonated with my basic understanding of of the DOM and the things that you can do. And then one that wasn't so complicated that it was um, easy enough for me to pick up and be relatively productive. As uh, as a beginner in web dev, and where I landed was Svelte. Out of all strange choices, I definitely did React and Vue, and React I found to be far more complicated, maybe than it needs to be. It seems like everybody's bolting on um, Redux and these state things and things that I don't understand, and I'm not really sure if I need them. And maybe they don't need to be there. I'm not sure. Vue is a little bit easier. I really like the idea of the one component per file. And like Next.js made that, or is it Nuxt? Uh, Nuxt for Vue and Next for React. And there you go. So Nuxt made <laughs> Nuxt made, made Vue more approachable because I had to worry less about things like routing. Um, and it and that's the server side um, aspect of, of Vue, right? Right. Yeah. It's it's interesting, you know, to be calling out to people too. If you if you listen to this show, you'll know that we don't make judgments on these different frameworks. We like all of them, but it is really interesting to hear somebody's perspective coming to them brand new from a background like yours to think what was hard or what was challenging, 
Uh, and you calling out some of this stuff is interesting. And I noticed you didn't call out Angular, but you did try Vue and React. I'd I love did, to hear why you didn't go down that road. I did try Angular as well. And there were two things I found frustrating about Angular. The first was there's an obvious uh, inflection point somewhere in Angular's history. And I'm sure you know the details far more than I do. But there's there's a new version of Angular and an old version of Angular. And it's impossible to figure out which one you're using when you search the web. So is it AngularJS or the other Angular.io? I don't know. Um, so tutorials were terrible in terms of you know which version was which. And uh, Angular's syntax itself was um, off-putting from the way I think. So with the embedded tags or embedded I don't know what you call the little things inside the tags, like the ngif and ng directives. Those yeah. those did not resonate well with me. And which is also what's inside of um, the, the I think we call them directives, right? Word. Mm-hmm. Those are also what's inside of Vue, and that didn't bother you so much with Vue. It was a little bit easier with Vue. I think the directive names maybe were easier for me to 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 get. But it's still I I tried Vue and and I had access to the brightest. Angular and Vue and React people that I know. I mean, at, at Microsoft, at the Developer Advocacy Group, truly some of the best developers for front end that I had access to, John and Sarah Drasner and Brian Holt, I mean, just brilliant people. And I just pestered them constantly with questions and um, none of them really worked out for me. You know, something that also pulls me up on this too is uh, while Vue and Angular both do the directives inside the templates, uh, React goes the other direction and uses JSX or TSX if you're using that inside it. So basically, put your template inside of your functions. Uh, how did you like that? So I, I'm mixed on that. I feel like JSX was pretty nice to write. It, it felt it felt comfortable writing JSX, but then there was a part of me internally screaming, like I'm putting this this logic somewhere. That it really doesn't belong. I mean, it's <laughs> there's there's definitely you know the old school Brian is saying why am I putting all of this stuff in my templates? Why why is there logic in my templates? It's, I don't know which part of my head was screaming that, but definitely React violated that that core tenet that I've seemed to have grown up with that that I shouldn't be putting wrapping logic all around my templates. So that, yeah, no, that nobody felt wants awkward. to feel like they've been violated. And with that note, let's take a quick word from our sponsors. Are you building a web application? Need to deliver it soon and don't have the people to do it? Maybe you're not sure your company has the skill set or experience to do it. And maybe we can help. I'm your host, Ward Bell, and my day job is building applications for companies like yours. I don't do it alone. I'm president of IdeaBlade, a consultancy that specializes in enterprise web application development. We're particularly strong in Angular, RxJS, NGRX Redux on the front end, and .NET Microsoft technologies on the server. We're a small, tight-knit group of people handpicked by me for their expertise, experience, integrity, and team spirit. Maybe we can help you with architectural guidance and hands-on development. And if there's something we don't know, and in our field, really, there's too much to know, we can draw on our personal connections in the Microsoft RD, MVP, and Google GDE networks, as well as our international circle of really great developers, people we know and trust personally. If you've got a project that's keeping you up at night, Shoot us an email at info at ideablade.com. That's info at ideablade.com. And now back to the show. 
And we're back. And we we're just talking about your first experiences with Angular, Vue, React. And we'll get to Svelte in a, in a minute because that's where you landed. But I find, listening to you, I find something in common with a lot of people I've spoken with, Brian, about these technologies and their first experience with them. And that's, it sounds like what you're saying is the way those things made you feel was not comfortable. You know, it wasn't so much that the technology, you found a flaw with it or something it didn't do. It was more about your comfort level with writing the code in the way that those technologies view React and Angular worked. Am I on target there or off? Yeah, I think that's relatively accurate. Um, and maybe a lot of that's just based on my training as a developer. I felt like parts of each of those uh, frameworks just felt off. They, they didn't really jive with the way I learned how to do programming. So let me ask you a question, Brian. Did <clears throat> was your vision of how uh, the HTML that the users see comes together that the that the program or the you know, with the help perhaps of a framework should assemble that view? Was that how you, was that your mental model that what I, my code is going to do is piece together um, the view that I then present to the user? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that. <clears throat> that that is very much if i was if i if i think of myself as a a server side person who hasn't you know is who hasn't done any sort of recent development of html that's exactly how i would think of it i want to assemble a view <clears throat> and and that i think react and it it's felt is a sort of a derivative of that right in some sense it's in that sort it's of, in that yeah. line of thinking that it it views the world does felt kind of view the world that way I'm going to build the view. I guess the thing about all of them that I enjoy was the idea of components. You know, components definitely resonate with me. Uh, how the components are built maybe is is a different story, but but it's easy for me as a, a, a long ago web developer to see a tag and understand that the tag represents some functionality and that that I can build a thing that makes that tag myself. So I, I, I enjoyed and appreciate the idea of components. And maybe for too long, I spent uh, too much time trying to go down the actual web component route. And I think that just wasn't ready yet. You maybe mean like it, the formal web component yeah, for, idea? Yeah, actual web components, yeah. which are just now maybe uh, mature enough to, to start looking at. But when I was looking maybe a year or two ago, it was it was too much work and too many polygons. Well, and they tell you how to build one, but they don't tell you how to how to integrate them. And, a, and an application is is how do these things go together? How do components come and go? How do I get from one place to another? It has nothing to say about that. Amen. So, and and the answer with with web components is you have to fire custom events, and then you have to listen for them in other components and. Yeah, I had a lot of experience with web components uh, over the years. And while they've gotten better, I still, you know, unpopular opinion, I just don't feel like the pure web components is a great thing these days. Uh, we just haven't gotten to the promise of what they could possibly be yet, in my opinion. Uh, the actual reality of dealing with them has just felt like uh, painful to me. You know, do you use vanilla JavaScript? Do you use Polymer? Do you use Angular, Vue, or React to create your web components? Do you use a com combination of those? And Making them all talk to each other, it sounds amazing. But 
what the reality was for me was a lot of times I needed to share stuff across these things that wasn't necessarily in any of the components. And it just, it got to be a, a new architectural problem. I solved one problem, you know, how do I architect my components, different technologies and keep them small with a new problem of, wow, I never had a problem of figuring out how to make, you know, my application share stuff. Now I do. So in walks Svelte. How did you even get uh, clued onto Svelte and what did you think? Well, my morning coffee ritual is to fire up Hacker News and see what shiny new toy is going to steal my attention for the day. (laughs) Um, The developer's equivalent of CIO Magazine on an airplane. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And and I saw, I had seen Svelte, um, the, the previous version of Svelte, uh, maybe two years ago or a year ago, and and I enjoyed it, but I still had problems with the way the the component definition looked. There was too much boilerplate, and and I was really looking for something that had no boilerplate or very little boilerplate. And then Svelte version three dropped, and it, the the heavens opened, the choirs of angels sang, and I found something that just clicked with the way I think about web development, and it was perfect. It's got, uh, you know, each each component has three different uh, sections. You've got the scripting section, you've got the CSS section, and then the HTML section. And I, I, I don't understand enough about how to describe the architecture of Svelte, but it they, they use the word reactive a lot, and I won't argue with that because there's there's lots of reactivity concepts that just, they make great sense. Svelte has stores and I don't have to think about um, state management because of these stores. Um, I just make a store and I use it from different components and everything works and I'm happy. You know, I just I feel like it's it's maybe not big enough for the larger applications that you would build, but any website that I'm gonna build by myself, Svelte is really light and it fits with the way I think about web development. It's just so simple. Well, let me and kind of just walk through a quick um, example for folks listening here. If you're at your computer later, folks, and we'll put this in the show notes too, the actual steps, technically to use Svelte, here's a couple steps that you can run off their docs. You run NPX, which you listen to our show before, you know that that will effectively let you go get a package off NPM without actually having to install it. NPX, dget, D-E-G-I-T, and then the name of this Svelte JS template, which is just a, a Git rep- a repository. And effectively, what that dgit command does, it copies that repository, like a clone, locally on your machine. It effectively gives you a starter project without having to run a CLI command or anything like that. So it's a way of effectively cloning a GitHub repo without all the Git history and everything else. So it's super fast. And then you just run npm install, which will then run through the packages of that Svelte project, and then you can run it. You're done. So it's it's kind of cool that it doesn't even have its own CLI in this case that's necessary uh, to run right out of the gate. Is that the steps you follow when you got into this? Or what do you do now that you're a Svelte expert, Brian? Well, the first thing I did was go through the tutorial. <laughs> expert, that's hilarious. First <laughs> thing I did, that. <laughs> the, the online tutorial at, on svelte.dev is fantastic. It's really nice because it it gives you, you know, most of the boilerplate that you need to solve a problem, but you've got to... You type in the extra bits that that cement your knowledge about that thing it's teaching. So the the online tutorial has maybe twenty or thirty steps that you go through introducing the concepts of Svelte. And this is the thing in the JavaScript world 
that I am just madly jealous about in the backend world. All of these online REPLs are amazing. You can you can edit code and run code in your browser. You know, I'm angry about this because this isn't a thing that we can really easily do in the backend world. So, you know, the sandboxes, the online um, code pen, that sort of thing, you know, it doesn't exist in the, the backend world. And it's simple in the JavaScript world. So you count your blessings, front-end people. You know, this is a beautiful thing that you have. Yeah, as much time as we take to complain about things. You're absolutely right. It's so nice that we can run whatever your favorite JavaScript tool is in the browser with very little hassle these days. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. So that was a big part of my learning process was just playing around with um, code pens or, or things that other people had already written and just modifying them to to make changes and, and see what happened. That's That's kind of how I've always learned is taking a running thing and disassemble it, put it back together and see if it still runs and you know, make, make small changes. So that was step one. And step two was the step that, you know, it's the reason I'm here in this, in this podcast today. It's because once you break out of that uh, code pen REPL online world and you go into the world where you have to install NPM and you have to use Rollup or Webpack or those node tools, that's where I dropped off every single time I wanted to do front-end development. You. Yeah, those build tools that are out there, whether it's uh, Grunt, Gulp, Webpack, Rollup, or you know whatever, there are people who are excellent at them. I got to tell you, I've gotten deep into some of them, and it's probably the least amount of fun I've had in front-end development, to be honest. Well, that's absolutely true. You, if you're just doing simple HTML development, then the the default with a Svelte app is Rollup. And Rollup could not be any better at getting out of your way. The default that ships with a new Svelte application is so painless and so light, I never once thought about the tooling and the ecosystem. But then I needed to add authentication to my app. So I go out and I find 30 different tutorials telling me how to add Auth0 or Firebase or... Um, uh, what's the 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 uh, AWS one? Amp, Amplify, amp, whatever AWS's thing is. So so I'm I'm going through these tutorials and it says you have to add this this uh, npm package. So I add the npm package, yarn add whatever, and now rollup is broken because <laughs> this this uh, window doesn't exist or you know something something isn't being exported and it's because there's a node side of things and then there's the web side of things and. I want to kill somebody. I really do. Somebody needs to pay for the fact that this front-end development thing has two different runtimes. There's the runtime that goes in the browser, which you know today is, is a lot of V8, I guess. But then there's this Node.js thing that's running on my computer while it's doing stuff, or perhaps on a server. Those aren't even similar worlds. Why are we calling those both JavaScript? But Brian, it's really just JavaScript. No. <laughs> No, one of y'all is going to jail. How can you say that? Look at the syntax. Well, no, the, even the syntax is different. I was oh. I was looking at uh, a script because I wanted to do. So I had some markdown files, and this was before I realized that there were tools that could do this better for me. I, I built my own Node.js script that read a folder full of markdown files and manually converted them into JSON. So pre-rendered HTML in JSON format. 
And that was a really great learning experience for me, except for the part where promises were different in Node.js than they are in the web. And I had to import, I don't even remember the name of the library, like Butterfly or something. I don't know. Some, some library to do promises, and they work differently and act differently than the promises that I was... Was it Bluebird? Yeah, sure. <laughs> nod, nod your head and smile. I have no idea. <laughs> all right, Brian. But, but so, so I, we all hear you. Now I want to, you to remind us how much easier all this was for Java. For Java? Uh, you know, it's been, a, it's been a bit since I've done Java, but um, Java, was, Java had the same growing pains that JavaScript has had. Right. Multiple implementations of Java, just like we have multiple implement. I guess the IOJS thing is is long past, but yeah, yeah. But still, Node versus browser based is is different. And um, back in the day, um, early in Java's history, Microsoft did their best to fragment Java, and I'm sure they're regretting that now. Um, it Java was just as difficult as JavaScript. Is and John, tell me about how easy it is to configure Azure. <laughs> to configure Azure, like that's like saying that's how, how easy is it to configure a person, right? Uh, <laughs> what about or, Azure? <laughs> or, or, or you know, in other words, what I'm I I guess what I'm getting at is <clears throat> that it seems as we uh, my experience every time I try and learn something, like I bet if I wanted to go learn Go, I my initial experience just with Go itself would be. Wow, look at the syntax, look at the power, look at the economy of expression. <clears throat> this is fantastic. Why isn't everybody doing this? And then the question becomes, okay, but now I got to put together a whole system in this. Now, I don't know for Go. I'm just guessing that it, you know, is, does it somehow free itself from the turmoil that surrounds building a big application? With dependencies and need to cross every <laughs> over and, and and loop in other things, does does it somehow solve that problem? Because every new technology, every technology I've ever tried goes through this same curve you're describing. I just listened to. <laughs> it's funny because I just listened to this entire topic, and I know nothing about Go this last week. And uh, Brian, you can clue in more than I can, so go for it. <laughs> so tell me so, how easy is it? So Go, when it originally shipped, had no concept of package management or or any external code. External code didn't exist and you just clone kind of like C++. You would clone things locally uh, using your favorite source control tool and if they existed in the right place, you could link to them. Um, that was the Go 1. And somewhere around Go 1.1 or 1.2, they added the idea of packages. And it was a novel way that we express packages in Go uh, by using their um, source control management URL. So the external URL of my project, which is github.com slash bkettleson slash Captain Hook, for example, one of my projects. That's the package name for the packages that I use, and that's how I import them in my code. So I would say import github.com slash bkettleson slash Captain Hook. That's great. But Go also included this package resolution system that was 100% dependent on a known point in the file system called your Go path. So you have a Go path, and let's say mine is at my home directory slash projects. So if I'm going to resolve a path for a package, 
I'll go to the projects directory. And then under that, there's a source directory. And then the github.com directory. And then the B. Kettleson directory. And then the Captain Hook directory. And that's the only place Go will ever look for a package by the name of github.com slash B. Kettleson slash Captain Hook. And that was, that was actually, I thought it was really novel. And I enjoyed it in the beginning. And I enjoyed it very much because it was a nice, clean way to organize my code. Well, where is this this package that uh, originates from Bitbucket? Well, let me go look at, at my projects directory slash source slash Bitbucket. There it is. You know, easy to find, um, simple, but it was all one giant um, source pool, one one giant directory of of stuff. So. When versions of things started coming out, the version of the Docker client that I downloaded for Project A would conflict with the version that Project B wanted, but they're all in the same place. So we all started building um, little like virtual env kind of apps for Go like they use in Python, and that was a pain. And just recently we've introduced as a community the idea of Go modules and modules uh, solve that problem in much the same way that uh, NPM does uh, with a, a cache directory and, and um, modules are a, a set of code at a known version. And so Brian, now, now I want you to add dead code removal to this mix because that's a new problem. Oh, you don't have that on the server, but you do on the client. And then I want you to add to this that sometimes you want to serve it to the client, but sometimes you want to server-side render it because you want to have immediately rendered and then have it. Oh, and then I, you see where I'm going. I do, but I, I feel like that's it's what bit, happens. That's what <laughs> but, but Ward, it's disingenuous because I'm coming from the perspective of a potential JavaScript developer, maybe a first time, a new Angular developer, or a new, new uh, React developer, and and explaining the things that are real sticky points for me. And, and you're justifying them because it's hard in every language, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't solve them. You know, honestly, Brian, I'm, I am, I'm hearing you and, and, and our audience is hearing you. And we, uh, John and I, and many of us have, have said that this is the thing that we trip over every time um, we take on one of these technologies. Um, and it's, we don't have we don't have an answer for it, but this is where this is this is where the headaches are. So I'll tell you my my pro- again another unpopular opinion here that I probably have on this is that I think the number one threat to JavaScript moving forward is the fact that we as a community overall there are people who are doing this, but overall we are more focused on new things and the way that we can get this new stuff out there as opposed to let's solve the problems that have been problems for ten years like. Let's actually make it so that a new person coming to this, like Brian, doesn't have to worry about using Rollup and Webpack and Gulp and Grunt and all these other things put together. And let's not forget System.js, who lived for a while in this stuff, too. I don't even still understand what the difference between AMD, System.js, Common something, Common JS, UMD. UMD. <laughs> I don't understand what all of those are. You shouldn't have I'd- to. I know Jeez, that Brian, they make me angry. Gotta, this is it, man. You're done. Get back out of it. <laughs> <laughs> you are so right. It's so frustrating to me because you'll be on these chats with people and they're like talking about this stuff. And it's like, do you understand that most of the development world shouldn't have to care 
about what cut type of bundle they have. This is stuff we should be solving. I feel like we, we got 98% of the way there to saying all the DOMs and all the browsers are relatively consistent. And then we're like, you know what? It's okay to have like different module systems and back end and front end. It's okay to have different bundling systems. And that's the problem. There are some people working on this, but I feel like instead we often focus on, hey, what's the coolest new thing in React? Or what's the coolest new thing in Angular? And you know what? Those problems, those tools are well-baked. I think we should go back and try to make it easier to get people to use the overall ecosystem. So answer this question for me as, as people who live in the front-end world. How do you feel about uh, WebAssembly when it gets native DOM bindings? Do you feel like that's going to make things better or worse? I feel like it's going to be a really valuable added tool. I don't look at it as a zero-sum game. Uh, the way I look at this is, because I do a lot of teaching, there's a lot of people who are interested in sticking with the technology they're using, whether it's Go, Java, .NET, whatever, on the back end, and C Sharp, for example. And they want to use that in the browser. And WebAssembly is going to open that door to those people without having to go through uh, JavaScript in some cases. I don't think it's going to make a whit of difference to the problems we're discussing. Not even a slight difference. All it's going to, what it will do, as John says, is it'll allow you to stay in the world um, to the degree that you have a world of front-end, front end, uh, user facing uh, UI technology that you like. You'll be able to use that, but you'll still have all of these problems. And it still has to deliver it to the browser. It's still going to have all the uh, you know all the build challenges and the um, stuff that we're facing. Isn't most of the reason we have things like Webpack um, and, and Rollup because there are so many different versions of JavaScript and ways to express a JavaScript module? Is, is, is most of that like just wrapping Babel? A lot of it is, uh, my interpretation, a lot of it is, is just a way to get your code off your machine or off your build system, whatever, and into the browser. Uh, it's not so much that there is multiple implementations or, or whatnot or forms of it as it is the browsers have to interpret it. And the other side of that is speed. Like, yeah, you know, for example, I come from .NET eight years ago, and there's no way I'd take a DLL that was um, 10 meg, which is perfectly fine on my computer here, and I would take that and shove it into a browser. So like in JavaScript, I wouldn't want anything that would be that large. So these build tools are really trying to take what we have and make them as fast as possible or the client applications. Right. You don't need roll-up at all unless you're concerned no. about dead code elimination. Don't need it. You can just you could just bring these things. You could you can make this ultra simple and just bring down every JavaScript file and every HTML file and every CSS file you need. Just bring them. And switching gears a little bit, you mentioned before, Brian, that we're front-end developers, and we do live in that world. But I think of myself, and I think maybe Ward, you do too, as a full-stack developer. Tons of experience in the back end. I do a, a ton of Node. Actually... I feel like the bigger problems in a lot of ways, uh, like I have a better better mind wrap around the architecture of the back end with Node architecture. And I'm kind of curious about Go. Me too. And how would I use Go on the back end to maybe be a web server or an API server? I mean, what are you using Go for? And what do you recommend? Yeah, and why Go? Why Go? Why Go Go? Why Go? That's because great... it's two letters? Yeah. <laughs> That's it. I think uh, Go is probably the best language to use on the back end if you really hate Googling things on the internet. 
Because Googling for the word go in a programming language, I, I, maybe they did it specifically to be a challenge to their search team, their indexing team. Yeah, I bet. I'm not really sure. No, in all seriousness, it's it's not that hard because we just get around that by using the Golang. Especially hashtag. if you're using VS Code, then you have to go code. <laughs> oh, <laughs> amen. Yeah, that's painful. Go, I found to be um, uh, maybe a better C. I came, so I came from... Uh, Java and C Sharp originally did lots of C Sharp backup until maybe uh, the 2.0 era of C Sharp. So that's kind of when I left C Sharp and I went into uh, scripting languages like Ruby. And I jumped heavily on the Ruby on Rails bandwagon and, and enjoyed that. Um, and then I found Go in 2010, really early 2010. And, and Go's... Um, the big thing about Go for me is that it's it's readable. Um, it has a lot of other benefits, but it, it turns out that you spend uh, far more of your time than you think reading code. And there are oh, yeah. there there isn't a lot of syntax to Go. It looks a little bit like C or Pascal, and um, it, it's really easy to follow a Go program. Doesn't matter who wrote it or when they wrote it. I can pull up any Go program and not be confused about what's going on. And for me, that's the biggest benefit of Go. The other benefits are, are, are really nice too. The fact that you compile down to a static binary, so you can just ship your binary up to a server and run it. You don't have to have a build system or anything complicated. Um, Cross-platform compiling. I, I can sit on a Linux machine and build a Windows binary just by adding an environment variable to my make command. Um, and that's just built into the language. That's that's wonderful. The tooling around Go, the developer tooling, is fantastic. They built a language that is easy to build tools for. And that that concept of building tools for the language is built into Go. You know, it's built to be introspectable and it's built for tools. So if you were going to build a like I've done a lot of uh, APIs. That's a lot of my backend work for the last 10 years is building web APIs and different technologies. I have not built one in Go. Uh, where would you point me to to start to get into that? So I, I would assume that you're building a web API, yes. uh, like a REST-type thing. Um, start with the net HTTP package. The, the HTTP package that's just built into Go is very powerful. The, the thing that it's really missing is um, multiplexing, That you know, making your... You're uh, choosing which code path to follow based on the URL. So we usually start with just the net HTTP package, and then we add a mux called Gorilla Mux, and and that kind of solves all of our problems. So it's it's very different from say the JavaScript world where um, you're going to build a web server and you import uh, what's the fancy web server that everybody express. So you're you, you're going to do express. And fancy express. I don't think yeah. I've ever heard of express called fancy. That's pretty cool. Well, when you think about the <laughs> dependencies that express pulls in, you know, there's, oh, sure. there's 20,000 other packages that come in with express with go, we can write a really stable and fast HTTP server. That's that's concurrent and can handle hundreds of thousands of concurrent connections at the same time on tiny hardware. And I've got one dependency. Nice. And that's, that's really nice. So the batteries included part of go is a big deal for me. The, the standard library is really solid. So I'm curious in that, because uh, in Node, you can create a, an HTTP server with zero packages or dependencies as well. 
uh, out of the box. But the reason a lot of us use Express is a lot of the the ability to control the middleware and the things you want to add into it, like security or, or headers or whatever other things you want to do. What do you get out of the box with the uh, the Go API for HTTP? Uh, there's really nothing that you need to do that you can't roll by hand. Uh, the only reason to bring in external packages is if, if you want to write less of your code up front. And if you, you know, if you I don't think we could apply that, that stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sure, you can do it in in Node too. It's the same everywhere. But we don't. <laughs> That's but, the thing. <laughs> but we don't. But but in in Go, we often do. I mean, a lot of people uh, don't see a reason to bring in external code, and maybe it's because the the standard library is expressive and powerful enough. For example, you mentioned middleware. Um, in Go, we have the concept of a handler function. And a handler function is an interface in Go. And any code that, that meets that interface, which is just a, a function signature, can serve as an HTTP handler, which means that you can wrap other HTTP handlers with your own code, and you can chain them together, middleware. Well, they didn't reinvent middleware. What they did was apply functional programming to the API. And it doesn't feel terribly functional. It doesn't get in your way if you're not a functional programmer. But it's definitely a step away from the typical OO um, mindset. You know, I think that's a lot of what differentiates a lot of our people who do technologies in the end is, is the feel that you get from it and the culture. Like in Node, we could easily just be writing our own code by hand a lot, but often we pull in dependencies for the ease of use or for whatever reason, maybe just the culture we're in. Um, but at the same time, myself included, we complain about the dependencies and the security of them and the amount of them sometimes, the debugability of them, what they're doing. So it's fascinating, you know, from a Go standpoint, maybe if I jumped into that, I'd write more of that code from scratch instead of depending upon those things. I gotta yeah, confess I'm skeptical. Uh, for example, the whole handler wrapping thing is the way we used to do things, the way C, all of the, C, the old C server stuff used to work. And everybody did it their own way, and you couldn't tell. And so one of the reasons we went to um, these various plug-in and pipeline models was to, make, to have a consistent strategy for chaining and for inserting new logic and you know and there, and there was the whole you know then you have this variation between whether it's a russian dolls thing where the same handler hands things both going down and coming back up or whether it's just tacked on to the end and where you bail out and all of these are decisions that you have to make if you handwrite the code about how you're going to make it extensible for the thing you forgot to do or for somebody else to do uh, and if you do it one way and somebody else does it another way it's tough, and that's and it was precisely to bring some kind of order, which comes with ceremony, to um, to this problem of how parts get introduced and in, uh, into a pipeline. That um, that we actually ended up with these pipelines and stopped writing everything by hand. And so, so when I hear hear you say, "Well, in Go, we just write it all over again," it's kind of like, "Oh boy." <laughs> What are we doing here now? Now you know that's great. If I'm the only guy on the project, then I'm going to live on it for life. But how does it go to the next guy? I, you're just not. You're, it's fascinating to hear you say it, Brian. You're not selling me. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, and before you answer that, Brian, uh, I want to make sure everybody gets a chance to get their final thoughts in. But Brian, you, you've kind of have to respond to Ward here on this, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is my job to say things like that. By the way, Brian, that's my job. 
Uh, of course, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, I, I guess you're just going to have to trust me that uh, it, it isn't uh, it isn't all of us going cowboy and writing different interfaces. The the uh, Go HTTP handler interface makes it really clear what your responsibilities as a middleware author are. So it, it's it's really it, it's just. Just like using Express, because there's a defined interface for what middleware is, it just happens to be the function signature for an HTTP handler. And that makes middleware almost um, uh, such a trivial thing that we don't even think of it as middleware. We're just wrapping how we handle a function with another function, and uh, it's really simple. Well, that's great. It, Brian, I got to tell you, I, I was interested in Go and I've been for a while. And recently, you have a gentleman on your team, uh, Aaron Schlesinger. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, working with him on a talk that he's preparing on the package manager uh, situation in Go. And it got me more intrigued about, about the ecosystem. So I'm definitely going to have to dive a little in. I put a lot of show notes into links of things that Brian was uh, talking about. Um, but also, Brian, you work for the Azure team with Go. And I'm kind of curious, is you talk a little bit about like what's going on in the cloud with Go and what would you recommend folks look at? Oh, wow. So, well, I'll, I'll start with a plug for Aaron. You just mentioned uh, Aaron Schlesinger. He is the author of a, a video series called Go in Five Minutes. And it's just like it sounds, go in and then the number five minutes.com. Uh, and he's got these great little screencasts where he teaches a, a concept from start to mit- to finish in five minutes. Sometimes they're part of a bigger series, but it's always always a, a good uh, a tutorial in going five minutes. So Aaron puts a lot of time into those. Definitely a great place to get a taste for what Go looks like. Uh, in terms of Azure, Azure is, is making big moves in the Go world. And uh, you'd probably be surprised to find out just how much of, of the back of Azure is powered by Go and how hard Microsoft is working to uh, make all of their services available to uh, Go clients uh, to consume. That's pretty cool. And I just put a link in there to some of his uh, Go in five minutes, which uh, kind of made me chuckle the first time he said it, I have to admit. Um, looks like it's a screencast. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Okay, cool. Got you there. Uh, we always get creative with the names of things out here, don't we, <laughs> in the technology world? <laughs> Uh, so with that note, I want to thank you for coming on, Brian, especially on such short notice and, and kind of showing everybody uh, kind of what your experience has been like coming into JavaScript. And just a quick question for you. If you had to do it all over again, you were telling somebody else who's coming right behind you in similar situation, been doing Java, Go, C Sharp, whatever, and wants to get into JavaScript, would you tell them to jump to Svelte or would you tell them to do, what would you tell them to look at? I think I would probably uh, counsel them to focus on vanilla JS and learning the fundamentals and principles of JavaScript development before even considering all of the rest of the ecosystem that made things so complicated for Boy, me. That's because, great advice. Because <laughs> I absolutely stumbled over things that I shouldn't need to stumble over uh, when trying to figure out you know, things like arrow functions. I, uh, okay, but... It didn't work because I was using um, Webpack. Or my Babel settings were wrong. I don't know. It would just have been so much right. simpler if I had a fixed environment with far fewer variables in the developer ecosystem for me. That's awesome. And Word, do you have any final thoughts for everybody? Well, uh, first, 
Uh, I want to say that despite my skeptical remarks, I'm deeply curious about Go. And, um, and so that the skepticism is for me an open door, not a, not a way to slam the door shut at all. So thank you. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll plug my book, uh, Go in Action. Oh. You can grab that on uh, Amazon.com or at your favorite bookstore, Go in Action from Manning Press. Awesome. I'm well, going to put that Definitely up there. put that in the show notes because uh, – yeah, Is that I a want- picture of you on the cover there? I'm kind of it curious. It is. Yeah. Isn't that a great picture too? <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it to the audience to go click on the link. <laughs> He's got a face only that his mother could love? Is that one of those? Or, uh, I don't know. I haven't looked yet. And uh, weapons. <laughs> and weapons, yes. Uh, and no shirt on. There you go. <laughs> uh so so anyway, I'm going sideways here. I've gotten into these uh, Dr. Becky's astrophysics video YouTubes, and she answers questions for me that that dig me into the history. They they make astrophysics sort of the history of it, the recent history of it, come alive for me. So, for example, she talks about how we know, uh, you know, is there a ma- an ultimate size for supermassive black holes? How do we know that they are, there's one in the center of the Milky Way? How do we even know that the Milky Way exists and that we're in it and what it is? That kind of stuff. And she's wonderful at it. So I put a couple links in. I want to thank both of you for coming on and thank all of you for listening to yet another week of Real Talk JavaScript. The thunderstorms are coming in here into Florida, and Brian and I, who are both Floridians, are about to get stormed out. So uh, we thank you for coming, and hope you all stay safe, and we'll find us every Tuesday morning. We'll either see you next week or next year if the storm is really bad. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Thanks for having me, John Ward. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Brian. You're awesome. Thanks for listening to Real Talk JavaScript. This show and all of our shows are available at www.realtalkjs.com with links and notes. John and Ward would love to hear what you think, especially about potential guests and topics for future shows. Follow and send them a message on Twitter at RealTalkJS. 